Welcome to Night Night Bitch. I'm your host, Molly, your guide to awe-inspiring texts read by me or in the voices of their original creators. Please know I don't own any of this content. It's all freely accessible online and duly cited in my episode descriptions for your reference. This podcast is a creative outlet for me, so I don't update it as regularly. But if you'd like to subscribe to my other podcast, Back From The Borderline, I release two thought-provoking episodes each week. And now, let's dive into the episode. Welcome. It's time to rest your weary mind, unwind, escape the matrix, and explore the arcane. We live in a culture that is rapidly losing its grasp on myth and meaning. Exploration of philosophy, depth psychology, esotericism, the occult, myth, and mysticism have been proven to inspire awe. Such experiences of daily awe have been shown to be psychologically beneficial and aid in the potential expansion of consciousness. Each time we're here together, I'll select a reading, article, or sample audio that could increase your opportunity for such experiences. While you listen, you might fall asleep. You might wake up. You might do both. Maybe finding the perfect balance between awake and dreaming is exactly what you always needed. Night night bitch. This is the exercise for your own development process designed by you. You should be hearing my voice in your right ear. Remember the purpose, your purpose for this exercise. And begin your pre-preparation process now. The affirmation beginning, I am more than my physical body. Modern tarot is not a card game. It's a form of divination. As such, modern tarot does not originate in medieval Italian card games, although they eventually became mediums through which cardomantic divination was done. Modern tarot has a much more ancient derivation in the phenomenology of religions, iconography, and in Western esoteric tradition. In their book, A Wicked Pack of Cards, Decker, DePolice, and Dumit make the following statement. The tarot pack is the subject of the most successful propaganda campaign ever launched. An entire false history and false interpretation of the tarot pack was concocted by the occultists. A statement such as this is as false as the misguided histories of tarot presented by Gebelin Atelier and the other founders of tarot occultism in Western Europe. 
There was no conspiracy to misrepresent tarot, only an attempt to understand and explain it. 18th century science was at the mercy of its own limitations, just as 20th century scholarship will later be recognized to be. A Wicked Pack of Cards, the book, provides us with an excellently researched history of medieval and modern tarot schools, but it does not attempt to understand and explain its significance. It understands tarot as part of the history of European games, but it has no appreciation for the origin of modern tarot in the history and phenomenology of the Western esoteric tradition, or as a sophisticated development of effective divination technique. A wicked pack of cards provides a great deal of information, but the authors do not have a thorough enough background in the Western mystery tradition to properly interpret their information. This episode is intended to refocus academic discussion of tarot to its significance and meaning within the context of real historical development in the Western esoteric tradition. The next portion of this reading is from a piece written by Christine Payne Towler. So you'll hear it read in the first person. And so this is not reflective of my experience, but these are Christine's words. She writes about the power of tarot. She writes, when I was a young academic teaching religious studies at the University of California in Santa Cruz during the 60s and 70s, I was chagrined at the gullibility of students for naive occultist theories about history, scripture, and emerging New Age fads like tarot. Like the authors of A Wicked Pack of Cards, I knew that modern tarot decks were merely a development of medieval Italian tarocci. Tarot was not the secret urim and thrum of the Old Testament, or the Heratic Egyptian Book of Hermes described by Clement of Alexandria. Yet, not only young, impressionable students, but often even intelligent, educated adults wanted to believe that the tarot was sanctified with Ori antiquity. As I began to have deeper experience and understanding of Eastern and Western esoteric tradition, however, I found myself using tarot and other forms of divination to touch more deeply into my own interior life. I began to understand the spiritual phenomenology of dynamic psychism, magic, and theurgy. I found that even some of the most recent decks, like the alchemical tarot, were extremely helpful to me. The readings I did for myself and for others clarified the invisible currents and subtle influences associated with important decisions and life crises. Many times, the tarot has warned me away from pathways that I later realized would have led to disaster, or has given me confidence to pursue directions that would have proven to be true to my purposes in life. At crucial times, the tarot has confronted me with hard advice that I could have never accepted from my closest friends. Again, it has cheered me with encouragement for which there seemed at the time no basis, and yet it was true. Can all this come from a pack of playing cards? Let us examine the historic esoteric influences associated with the iconography of the tarot trumps. 
The earliest extant Trump images date from the 14th century, and they include a female pope. Today, we know her as the High Priestess, or Isis Veiled. The Popess was a remarkable image to use during an era when the Knights Templar, Cathars, and other religious heretics were being tortured and burned in the Inquisition. We know that the Popess and other images fell afoul of the Catholic Church, which successfully suppressed tarot for two centuries, while the game Tarochi itself was often castigated by Protestant preachers. Why did the image of the Popess exist before the 14th century, and why was the tarot suppressed after this period? The issue raised by the Popess was theological dualism. The Albigensian heresy, which was the enemy that the Inquisition sought out, either among the Cathars of southern France, the Bogomils of Bulgaria, or other sects, like the Paternets. These were all survivals of a form of early Christian Gnosticism known as Manichaeism. The religion of the martyred Saint Manis became anathema after St. Augustine of Hippo, a Manichaean of the 4th century, converted to Catholicism and became a founding theologian for Roman Catholic theology. The teachings of the dualist sects allowed women to be clergy and to even hold office as pope. During the period of European history from which the image of the Popess survives, the Bogomils were loyal to their own mysterious pope in Bulgaria, who may well have been a woman saint. Many of the heretical communities of the time relied upon prophetesses and female channels of spirit to guide them, just as the early Montanists had done. In the Visconti Sforza Tarocci deck, we find a popess dressed in the habit of the Omitala order of the Gugilamites, whose female leader, a Bohemian Lombard, died in Milan in 1281. The image of the deck represents Popes' sister Manfreda, who was elected Pope by her sect. She was regarded as an avatar of the Holy Spirit, sent to inaugurate the new age of spirit prophesied by Joachim of Flora. This Popes was burned at the stake in autumn AD 1300, the year that the new age ending male domination of religion was supposed to begin. Later, the Inquisition started proceedings against Matteo Visconti for his slight involvement with the sect. In addition to the dualist heretical communities, there was a great prolification of apocalyptic and New Age theory that occurred with the advent of the millennial year AD 1000. Isolated scholars translated the Latin Bible and especially the Book of Revelations into their vernacular languages and read them as ciphers for their own age, which was one of the ecclesiastical privilege and corruption. Their insights were privately promulgated and secret societies formed to spread reform and revolutionary religious ideas. From seminal movements like those of Joachim of Flora, the German mystics in the line of Meister Eckhart and the Brethren of the Free Spirit, there developed the greatest political groundswell that was ever to threaten the Roman Catholic hierarchy, Protestantism. It now dominates much of Christianity, but it is still regarded as theological heresy in Rome to this day. The early protesting, or Protestant, sects were fiercely persecuted by Rome, 
which lumped them together with the Albigensians, keepers of pre-Christian pagan religions, as well as the Jewish and Islamic infidels. All of these groups were labeled as theologically dualist in the perspective of Rome, either because they recognized a feminine or mother aspect of Godhead, as was the case with the Cathars, Jewish Kabbalists, or the Bogomils, or because they preserved a Gnostic cosmology and anthropology. The Christian dualists were especially targeted because their Christologies were based on the mystic Imitatio Christi, a discipleship aimed at ultimately becoming a Christ. It would have been more to call them Unarians because ultimately they viewed humanity as an emanation of God that contained a spark of deity and would eventually return to Godhead rather than a mere creation of dust doomed ever to be subordinate and inferior. The Cathars preserved the Merovingian ideal of the wife of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and his physical offspring through their concept of holy blood, against which the Carolingian revolution had presented the ideal of the Mass and Eucharist as the holy blood of Christ. The Eucharist sacrament was the priestly means through which the church maintained authority over its people. If personal mysticism and spiritualized allegories were to triumph over these physical sacraments, the church would lose its power. That is why later Protestantism renounced priesthood and sacraments as popish tools of Satan. But the ideal was originally that of the Gnostic heresies, who viewed human love as the divine sacrament par excellence and maintained the symbolism of a male and female Christ. Under circumstances of political suppression and threat of the Inquisition, the wave of revolutionary spirituality that swept over Eastern and Western Europe in the 10th to 15th centuries was transmitted in heretical ballads sung by Bogomil troubadours and in other forms of art, imagery, and iconography. Very clearly, part of this trend is preserved in the iconography of the early Tarochi or Tarot trump cards. The most evident aspect of this iconography is the female pope, or the priestess. Tarot innovator Edgar Waite was the first modern scholar to propose that the trumps were originally a series of images to convey the philosophy of the Albigensians. It's ironic that Waite should make this observation, since he radically altered the images of the tarot trumps, adhering to sweeping changes made by the English occultists of the Golden Dawn to the traditional European images. Waits' altered tarot images are those most familiar to laypersons, and yet there are many steps removed from the original iconography. Perhaps the best example of the original iconography to survive the Inquisition is the Marseille deck, which synthesizes alchemical and other imagery with an Egyptian theme that I'll later address. An excellent discussion of the influence of heretical religion on the original tarot trump images is included in a book by Robert V. O'Neill entitled Tarot Symbolism. His chapter on heretical sects and their influence on the tarot is carefully researched and deserves a wide reading. Tarochi iconography and hermetic philosophy tarot was far more than entertainment during the period of the 1300s to the 1500s when the game was suppressed. It appears among the luminaries of the church as a means for contemplation and deep discussion. 
Tarochi cards with Trump images corresponding to hermetic, philosophical, and cosmological ideals were used by Pope Pius II and Cardinals Basarion and Cusa in the mid-15th century during a church council in Mantua. The images of Mantenega's Tarochi include Lecaios, representing the first Iliaster of Paracelsus and other metaphysicians, the seven planets, and other elements of the hermetic platonic hierarchy of being. Nietzsche Las of Cusa later wrote concerning a similar card game he had devised. This game is played not in a childish way, but as the holy wisdom played it for God at the beginning of the world. The impact of hermetic philosophy and iconography on the church of the counter-reformation was considerable. There was a time when many of the intellectuals of Europe hoped that hermetic philosophy would be the means through which Catholic theology would be reformed to meet the challenge of Protestantism, science, and secular thought. There is still a sealed room in the Vatican, belonging to the Borgia Pope, that is painted with images of Hermes Trismegistus and other occult symbology. Statues and printed images of Hermes Trismegistus, Pythagoras, and other legendary adepts proliferated. Hermetic thought struggled with church theology within the Vatican itself, but was overcome by the forces of conservatism by the middle of the 17th century, never to surface again. However, during the oppression of heretical sects and the evolution of the Reformation, new venues for esoteric and occult thought developed within Protestantism and Catholicism. The Knights Templar had been driven underground, but the Priory of Sion lived on as an elite, Catholic, secret esoteric society with grand masters like Botticelli and da Vinci, whose art preserves the hermetic cosmology and ideals. The Rosicrucian and Freemasonic movements of Protestant mysticism produced an esoteric renaissance based on hermetic thought and its synthesis with astrology, alchemy, magic, and a Christian version of Jewish Kabbalah that used not only Hebrew, but Greek and Latin alphabets. All this, in turn, was integrated with Greek philosophy and Pythagorean theory. The scholar Francis Yates's book, Giordano Bruno, and the Hermetic Tradition, demonstrates the importance of iconography, philosophy, and hermetic idealism during the period crucial to the development of the tarot imagery. Alchemists and other practitioners of the esoteric arts transmitted their most profound teachings such as the evolution of the Sophic hydrolith or the Philosopher's Stone, by means of iconographical allegories. It would be naive to think that tarot images were devoid of such interpretation in the 14th to 16th centuries, even though they were suppressed. During the 18th century, when the Inquisition was losing its grip on most of Europe, both Europe and the New World were rushing toward a violent democratic revolution. Tarot again surfaced, not merely as an Italian card game, but as a means of divination. It became a focus of interest for occultists who, like French and English Freemasons, wished to sanctify their alternative spirituality with the authority of Ore Antiquity. The earliest historical record we have of playing cards being used for divination is found in a memoir of the year 1765 by Casanova, about the beautiful young Russian peasant girl named Zaire. She arranged 25 playing cards into a magical square 
and was able to read in them all the details of his amorous adventures of the previous evening. On the basis of this account, the authors of A Wicked Pack of Cards speculate that cartomancy began with Russian peasants in the 18th century, but to assign an origination date to an oral folk tradition, especially when it concerns magic, divination, herbs, or medicines, based upon the date of its first mention in European literature, is unrealistic and quite ignorant of the historical dynamics of oral tradition. Where did Zaire get her knowledge of cartomancy? Not from books, and certainly not from the French nobility, who in the 18th century had just began to discover occultism, divination, and spiritualism, and related to their previous flirtations with the hermetic science. No. Zaire's knowledge came from an oral folk transmission, totally independent of literacy, and with a much greater antiquity than the literary products of Gutenberg's revolution. The source of Zaire's knowledge was ultimately gypsy folk tradition. The gypsies were a unique nomadic nation that left India and wandered to Europe by way of Eastern Europe and Bohemia. They were erroneously considered by Europeans, including Russians, to be a survival of the ancient Egyptian people. They were also known as Bohemians because of their annual traveling routes brought them into Europe by way of Bohemia, often known as the motherland of many European esoteric traditions. Gypsies had their own kings and queens, their own initiatic traditions, and they were experts in forms of entertainment, animal training, and divination for wealthy clients. Methods of divination included reading various elements like tea leaves or scrying crystal globes, clouds, sand formations in stream beds, or reflections of the moon on water. They read palms, used other physiognomic techniques, and they developed various psychic arts that were attributed to Rosicrucians, alchemists, and other occultists of Prague and Bohemia. As interest in the gypsy, Egyptian, arts developed into European spiritualist fads of the 18th century, as the Hermetic or Egyptian philosophy spread through publications of the Corpus Hermeticum and various alchemical and magical texts purchased by the nobility, and with the popularization of hieratic Egyptian artifacts like the Mensa Ikazia, Tablets of Isis, published by Kircher, all divinatory and esoteric knowledge was attributed to ancient Egypt. Everything from Freemasonry to mesmerism claimed its roots in the horary antiquities of Egypt. Gebelin, Attilia, and other 18th century European popularizers of cardomancy attributed the tarot to the ancient Egyptian books of Thoth and the Trump images to the symbolic frescoes on the walls of Egyptian temples used as part of instruction given during priestly initiation. The iconography of Egyptian Serapian temples were familiar to Italians. The temples had been built in Italy and Asia Minor during the Roman Hellenistic period when Egyptian Isis religion was popular throughout the empire. A Serapian temple had been excavated as early as the 10th century, and Italians often traveled to see it and speculate on the meaning of its frescoes and hieroglyphics. During the Italian Renaissance, classical culture was studied and idealized. It's quite possible that Tarocci images were understood as allegories from the very beginning, since the game itself was a kind of medieval game of life with reference to archetypal human conditions. Since the Serapian temples were places of initiation into the Isis cult, 
It's also reasonable to assume that there are iconography related to initiatic journeys through life. To this extent, it's not impossible that tarot images, which had a similar purpose in Tarochi, had some root in Egyptian temple iconography. But cartomancy, or divination with playing cards, was not an Egyptian invention. There may have been other systems of divination parallel to the throwing of yarrow sticks for the I Ching in the ancient or Roman Hellenistic world of Egypt, but there's no evidence of anything similar to playing cards. Fortune-telling with playing cards, or cartomancy, was popularized by gypsies in medieval Europe after the invention and publication of playing cards. Because the authorities and teachers of cartomancy were gypsies, divination with tarot cards was assumed automatically to be Egyptian. The Sanskrit-related language of the gypsies was called Romani, erroneously related to Romanian, the gypsies were considered to be spiritually allied to the heretical and protesting religions of Europe, especially the Bulgarian, Romanian, and Bohemian villagers, whose folk religion preserved Manichean and Gnostic elements, and whose preoccupations in the 18th century included astrology, alchemy, and esoteric speculative Freemasonry. These included the descendants of the Bogomiles, Cathars, and Albigensians, who had become the objects of persecution and attempted genocide by partisans of the Roman Catholic Church, and whose cultures had produced the wandering troubadours, who sang mystical, heretical songs to the Magdalene and told stories of the Holy Grail. As a bridge to Eastern mysticism, European heretics had nurtured the European consciousness that would produce the institutions of chivalry and courtly love, as we have covered in previous episodes. In the heyday of the Hermetic Renaissance and amidst the social upheaval of the Protestant Reformation, the mysterious gypsies immigrated to Europe and wandered in large bands. They brought the ways of Indian mysticism and divination with them, and when they arrived in the 15th century Western Europe, the romance of the vanquished European heretical cultures was associated with them. They were welcomed for the entertainment they brought, but they were also feared and avoided because of their ferocity of their fighting men and women, and often expelled or forced to move on. They were closely attuned to the animals they brought with them, developing skills in animal communication and training, they traveled in annual migration routes throughout Europe and the Slavic regions, moving south for the winters and north for the summers, providing carnivals or trained animal shows and various kinds of fortune-telling for a fee. They stayed clear of the regions where the medieval Inquisition held sway, but they were often still accused of witchcraft. By the 18th century, the Inquisition was on the wane. Gypsy lore was much in demand by both the nobles and middle class of Europe, the gypsies were happy to oblige credulous Europeans with stories of their ancient origins in Egypt. In fact, they called their homeland Little Egypt. Papermaking was brought to Europe from the East by Templars and other crusaders returning from the Holy Land or by Moors in Spain. The earliest paper-making centers in Europe were in the south of France and in Lombardy and Tuscany, the areas occupied and controlled by the Albigensians or the Cathari. After the massacre of the Cathars at Montségur in 1244 by operatives of the Pope, perhaps the greatest act of genocide known to history previous to the slaughters of Armenian Christians by the Muslims in the 12th century and Hitler's Jewish Holocaust in World War II, 
About 4,000 survivors wandered Europe like the gypsies, as troubadours, peddlers, merchants, and journeymen papermakers. The persecuted Albigensians papermakers used a secret, symbolic watermark on their Lombardy paper, by which means they communicated and kept track of each other in different areas. Interesting evidence of the esoteric relationship between gypsies, hidden Albigensians, hidden Knights Templar, and the operative Freemasons are indicated in manuscripts on guild practices created in the Roslyn Chapel Manuscript Manufactory of the 15th century, which is now in the Scottish National Museum and exhibited in facsimile at Roslyn Chapel, which, as scholars are now finding, memorializes Gypsy, Rosicrucian, Templar, Freemasonic, and other hidden esoteric institutions of the period, all of whom were in contact with one another. The St. Clair royalty of Roslyn were both protectors of the Gypsies and Grand Masters of the Operative Masons. Given these facts, it's quite reasonable to assume that the first manufacture of Tarochi cards was done by partisans of the persecuted Albigensian tradition who maintained close relationships with the Gypsies of India, the exiled Knights Templar, and the Scottish Masonic groups of the which Scottish Rite and other speculative forms of Freemasonic cult were emerging. This in itself points strongly to an esoteric origin for the tarot images from the very beginning of their appearance as playing cards manufactured by guilds of Cathar paper makers who lived in hiding. Gypsy tradition was Indian, but the traditions associated with the gypsies in the European mind were directly derivative from Roman Hellenistic Gnostic and Manichaean spirituality, which the Cathars were still practicing in the 13th century. The Roman Catholic polemic against magic and divination that had been successfully and brutally waged against the Greek mystery religions and the Neoplatonic philosophical schools like that of Hypatia never influenced the Gnostic Christian religious culture of the southern France and Bulgaria. There are many of the ancient divinatory practices of Greece, Asia Minor, Egypt, and the Hellenized world were not only tolerated, but developed and well integrated into daily religious practices. We must acknowledge that Murray's theories about the old religion of the witches and its survival in folk practices of rural Europe have been shown to be unrealistic. Modern Wicca, like modern Tarot, is a recent production with yearnings to an ancient occult history. The European romances about Egyptian Freemasonry, Christian Rosenkreuz, and ancient Rosicrucian Brotherhood, or the Theosophical Masters of Tibet, were also in great part the creations of spiritual imagination. They tell us more about the spirit of their own times than about sacred antiquities. However, in the case of Western esoteric tradition and its interaction with gypsy lore, we do find strong evidence that historical continuity with ancient pagan and mystery traditions. Gypsy traditions were strongly Indo-Iranian, thus extremely compatible with Manichaean and Gnostic culture. In their oral traditions concerning magic, spells, herbs, plants, stones, psychism, and divination, gypsy communities preserved Eastern folk magical and divinatory practices that were essentially and qualitatively different from those preserved in Western Christian monasticism. There is general agreement among occult authorities that the use of the tarot was popularized by the wandering bands of Bohemians, gypsies, who made their appearance in the late Middle Ages. 
not only occult authorities, but most scholars would agree that cartomancy and tarot card divination were introduced to Europeans by gypsies. In late antiquity, the Bohemians transferred and adapted their traditional forms of divination to the newly emerging form made possible by the invention of the printing press, the deck of cards. These more ancient forms of divination were compatible with the deck of cards because they relied upon a complex set of symbols, not unlike Chinese trigrams, Roman dice, druidic runes, that could be interpreted allegorically. They operated by means of randomizing these elements through throwing or casting, as with lots, dice, or yarrow stalks. They had numerological associations that could be used to amplify interpretation. The symbols of the gypsies would have been pictographic, although they could have developed into more glyphic representations, as did later demotic Egyptian or the Chinese trigrams of the I Ching. They would have been etched, drawn, or painted onto randomizable elements that could be cast or thrown like runes or dice. The numerical system they would have used would have been similar to Pythagorean decimal number lore, as it was derived by Pythagoras from the Indian Brahmin lore. Since we can see that the original tarot trumps were based, for the most part, upon Italian social images arranged in allegorical postures, and that only later were images altered to appear Egyptian or pre-Christian, it's easy to conclude that modern tarot trumps images have no relation to images or allegories that would have been used by the Indo-Iranian gypsies. However, there are certain original trumps that simply do not have a basis in medieval Christian society, such as the popess or female pope, which later became the high priestess. Moreover, this image certainly does have a basis in both Indian and Albigensian religion as the Gnostic Sophia, the Magdalene, the female Christ, and the virgin goddess. To what extent did the cardomancy of the gypsies influence even the earliest Tarochi trumps? Perhaps more than we can know. According to some authorities, the gypsy migrations began as early as the 9th century and peaked in the 15th century. Although gypsies must have made many innovations when they began to adapt European playing cards for fortune-telling, it's also clear that they were able to find attributions for suits and trumps that were recognizable and correspondent to their own traditions of divination. Thus, the fact that the images of the Tarochi trumps survive in various permutations in modern tarot decks indicates that they were congruent with gypsy folklore that served as the basis for divination. Iamblichian tarot tradition in the French occult revival of the 18th century, the occultist Court de Gablin theorized in 1781 that the tarot trump images originated in the initiatic halls of Egyptian temples. His ideas were popularized by Alet, later known as Atelia. But these men were not the originators of such speculation. It was already common understanding in French occult circles, which were essentially Freemasonic. In the year 1798, there were six to seven hundred Masonic lodges in France containing perhaps 30,000 of the most educated citizens. Unlike modern American Freemasonry, which after World War II became mostly blue-collar workers and lost much of its great intellectual patronage, the French lodges were, and still are, subscribed to by university professors and other intellectuals. Lodges were split between those chartered by nobility and under a grand master for life appointed by nobility, 
and the new democratic form in which masters were elected for a term. The first form was traditional, and its premise was that the Grand Master was a true adept, with all the knowledge and powers of a master. Unfortunately, princes and dukes often chartered unqualified Grand Masters, and the democratic movement in Freemasonry was causing lodges to split into factions. This same movement was attuned to the emerging American colonial revolution, and closely tied to its founders. Ben Franklin, for example, was the elected Grand Master of a lodge in Paris as well as in Philadelphia. An extreme wing of the Democratic Masons were the Frateris Lucis, Brothers of Light. Under the leadership of the university freethinkers, they were active architects of the French Revolution. They used forms of initiation that could result in death based on their ideas of ancient Egyptian priestly initiation. A document probably translated by the 19th century occultist Jean-Baptiste Batois, Christian, and published recently in English by Weiser entitled, Egyptian Mysteries is an example of a luminist initiato practice in the guidance of Egyptian lore. During one part of the ordeal, in which the candidate must work his way through a dark labyrinth, he finds himself in a lighted chamber with a bed, food, and a beautiful naked woman. He has vowed not to tarry, but if he does make the wrong choice, he's immediately set upon and killed. At this point in the 18th century, the lover's trump of the tarot is reinterpreted according to the Egyptian initiatic ordeal, and we see a man with two women, one on his right who is chaste, and one on his left who is a coquette. Over his head is an angel aiming an arrow at him to slay him if he makes the wrong moral choice. Allegorically, this represents the right-hand and left-hand paths, the way of life and the way of death of the Old Testament, the good and evil Yetzirim of the Kabbalah, or the Pythagorean motion to the left versus the motion to the right of Plato's Timaeus and the Kore Cosmo of Hermetic Gnostic tradition. But among the Fratres Lucis, or Brothers of Light, it represented something quite immediate and final. It's not known how many candidates met their doom in this form of Masonic initiation, but given the proclivities of Frenchmen, I am not optimistic. Egyptian lodges were established by Cogliostro, who, according to legend, was initiated by the Grand Master, the Compet de Saint-Germain, in a Templar ceremony using hundreds of candles. Cagliostro introduced the Egyptian rites, which paved the way for the later rites of Memphis and Mizraim, which competed with the Scottish Rite in 19th century America until it was finally banned or abandoned in different jurisdictions. There is now one chartered lodge of Memphis Museum in New York City that, like other later ultra-Masonic orders, admits both men and women. The Egyptian paradigm was justified by a medieval document claiming to be part of the body of writings by the Neoplatonist Lambichlis, whose manetho is the memories of an Egyptian priest. The pseudo-Lambichlian document describes initiatic images used in the Hall of Neophytes that correspond closely to the tarot trump images known in the 18th century. This, of course, is the holy grail of esoteric tarot advocates, evidence that the tarot images derive from an ancient and archetypal Egyptian temple images. Currently, there are many postings of a document by Michael Pope describing an Italian archaeological description of images from a Serapian temple in Italy that is now underwater. 
the images correspond exactly to modern trumps, with veiled Isis taking the position for the popess or high priestess. I've been unable to contact Poe, so I contacted the Italian Archaeological Museum in charge of the sunken temple of Serapis at Pelosi and asked for any information, as this is the only Serapian temple in Italy I know that's now underwater. As of this writing, I've had no response, but if Poe's information is correct, we would have an excellent possible source of the earliest Italian Tarochi images devoid of Egyptian dress. Pseudo-Lamblichus was part of Egyptian Freemason occultism that also revived Pythagorean theory and numerical symbolism as part of their synthesis of Christian Kabbalah, usually spelled with a C to differentiate it from true Jewish Kabbalah. This in turn was linked to alchemical, astrological, theological, and magical departments of the hermetic arts in the French occult revival. During this period of intense occult innovation, the tarot was legitimized among French practitioners as a valid ancient Egyptian divinatory tool. It's not surprising then that in this period we find Hebrew and magical alphabet attributions made to the trumps. But the Hebrew alphabet, with its 22 letters, became the most important system of attributions. The letters represented the 22 paths connecting the 10 sephiroth. These paths then were associated with each trump image. Some of the paths were in the lightning flash series leading from Malkuth back to Kether. So they were considered to be specifically associated with stages of initiation, while the others represented powers gained and obstacles surmounted at each of these stages. The authority for the paths was the Jewish Sefer Yetzirah, the Book of Creation. However, it existed in several redactions and versions, each differing on details. The oldest was the Gras version, but it may have been accessible to French occultists who depended upon Latin and French translations. However, the French occultists did have access to the Alexandrian and Hermetic attributions, those of the Renaissance Magi and Fratres Lucis document. With these, they were able to associate the correct Hebrew letter with the Kabbalistic path number and image in the 22-card series. These attributions were added to the tarot trumps in the 18th century France and spread to Italian, Spanish, and other continental decks by the 19th century. They were part of the general Freemasonic and Ultra-Masonic Lodge occultism of all of Europe. Tarot and the Kabbalah Levy's attributions in his book, Eliphas Levy and the French Occult Revival, Christopher McIntosh says, Clearly Levy was in possession of no pre-court de Geblin material connecting the Kabbalah and the Tarot. The connection was his invention. This is the kind of fiction about Levy that English occultists have promulgated since the days of the Golden Dawn. English Freemasons declared French Freemasonry invalid in the late 19th century when the Grand Orient decided to expand their definition of theism to include Buddhist, scientific, and other non-Judean Christian concepts of Godhead or ultimate reality. The bad blood between English and French occultism that divided Gnosticism into English and French Ecclesiae, Martinism into English Masonic and French Ultra or non-Masonic schools, and resulted in the contemporary French requirement that anyone who joins a Golden Dawn Lodge be demitted from French Masonic Lodges has been clearly evident in English attitudes toward one of the greatest French occultists, Eliphas Levy. In his conspiracy against the Catholic religion and sovereigns, Levy said, quote, 
the true initiates, who were Attilia's contemporaries, the Rosicrucians, for example, and the Martinists, were in possession of the true tarot, as a work of St. Martin proves, where the divisions are those of the tarot." End quote. St. Martin had been a member of the occult lodge established by the adept Martinez de Pasquale in the mid-18th century. He wrote his book, Divided According to the Tarot Trumps Before Levy's Era. Later brilliant Martinists like Pappas and Oswald Worth would affirm Levy's assertion that the tarot was the secret book of the 18th century Rosicrucians, which existed as, quote, their criterion in which they find the prototype of everything that exists by the facility which it offers for analyzing, making abstractions, forming a species of intellectual world, and creating all possible things, end quote. Levy elaborated on what French occultists had already created, perhaps a century before, and what was to become standard in all European tarot decks in the 19th century, the correct attribution of Hebrew path letters to the tarot trumps. In this system, the fool was attributed to Shin, and the magician was attributed to Aleph. The Hebrew letters were properly associated with their meanings as numerals. Just as Atelier had popularized tarot for fortune-telling based on gypsy lore, Levy popularized what must have been secret lodge teaching in which the tarot cards were used as tools of philosophical divination, probably assumed likeness to the book T of the 17th century Rosicrucian fame. The founders of the Golden Dawn fabricated German Rosicrucian adepts who had supposedly transmitted profound esoteric and initiatic knowledge to them and given a charter to teach and initiate others. In fact, however, most of what Mother and Westcott had actually received came from a French source, not German adepts, through Kenneth Mackenzie, who received it directly from Eliphas Levy. Few scholars would seriously challenge this assertion. Mathers was a brilliant creator and synthesizer who spent untold hours at the British Museum reading magical and Kabbalistic texts. He and Westcott, like all English occultists, were Freemasons. The synthesis they created for the Golden Dawn rituals combined Rosicrucian and Christian Kabbalistic doctrine with the kind of layout used on a Masonic floor. The floor and officers represent Sephiro, and initiation from 0 equals 0 to 5 equals 6 represented the upward ascent from Malkuth to Tibereth. The initiatic instruction given to each candidate on the path from one sephira to the next higher was allegorized on the tarot trump associated with the path number in the Hebrew alphabet. Mathers found that having the fool in the position of Shin didn't work for his Masonic floor plan, so he decided to retain its number of zero, but associate it with Aleph. To justify this, he and later English occultists claimed one of two things. Levy had given a blind or purposefully given a wrong Kabbalistic attribution to test people and make it possible only for adepts to discover the true attributions or Levy invented his own attributions and was wrong. After all, he was French, not English. How could he be right? Such were the later claims of dark luminaries like Aleister Crowley and even the American Paul Foster Casey. As a result, the Wait deck and all other English decks from that time forward have used the Golden Dawn system of Kabbalistic letter attribution to the tarot trumps in spite of the fact that it's blatantly inaccurate. 
The practice continues because very few modern occultists know how to apply true Kabbalistic principles to tarot interpretation. Only the European decks, like those of the Taglione, used to correct Trump attributions, and even Tavaglione presents the Golden Dawn Path attributions rather than those of the Gras. The tarot has a distinguished history in European esoteric tradition. It's not merely a card game that was adapted for fortune-telling by gypsies and then sanctified with occultist illusions. And yet, the tarot remains a valid and powerful tool for divination that has roots in much older occult systems. Thank you for venturing into the unknown with me. Full details about the selected text are available in the episode description. Selected readings are for the purpose of research and study, entertainment and discussion. The views and opinions expressed in the included readings belong to the original authors and creators and may not necessarily reflect my own. The episode description also contains links that will allow you to join the community on social and support the continued production of this podcast. Don't forget to follow the show on your favorite podcast player so you're alerted when new episodes are released. In a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in the golden gleam, life what is it but a dream? Night, night, bitch.